Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Got a great show planned today. Our first hour is going to be Dr. Andy Scudinga. We're going to talk about friendship and connection in a world of isolation. It seems that we are um, more often than not becoming more digital than, than personal, but we are, we are analog beings living in a digital world. Sometimes we just need a hug. We need a uh, shoulder to cry on. We need someone to laugh with and an eye to look into. So we're going to talk about that with him. And then in the second hour, Dr. Alex McFarland will be with me. And then Friday with Friends is going to be my friend Jane Lydon Cavanaugh. So that's all ahead. Let's take 60 seconds and get things started. Faith Radio offers the perfect resource for you to grow deeper in your faith and be encouraged. It's the Faith Radio Newsletter. The newsletter is a monthly email you'll receive when you sign up at MyFaithRadio.com. It points you to recent compelling interviews and encouraging articles. You can also stay up to date on our latest giveaways and upcoming events. Sign up for the Faith Radio Newsletter under the Subscriptions tab at MyFaithRadio.com. It's a phone, and I got a great deal. Um, Mom, I know why. I wanted an iPhone. This is a Y-phone. You never want an imitation, especially when it comes to faith and hope. So when you give a gift this month to Faith Radio, you're helping to spread truth, the real version of faith and hope to families and friends longing for it this Christmas. Thank you for praying about what you can do and giving at MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm awfully glad to be welcoming into the studio Dr. Andy Scudinga, and he is a professor at North Central University here in the great city of Minneapolis, and we are delighted to bring him in and talk to him about his job as a psychology professor. Uh, Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so, great to be here. Yeah, I understand you grew up in, a, you were a small boy growing up in Indiana. Yeah, I was born in Indiana, and I lived there for about... 48 hours, and then they sent me home to Illinois with uh-huh. my parents. Yeah, that makes sense. I was literally born in a hospital on the other side of the freeway. Okay. Maybe the other side of the tracks. I'm not sure how that would go. But, yeah, that was almost 45 years ago. I'm not a kid anymore. Yeah. And how long have you been uh, p- teaching uh, psychology? Well, that's a great question. I think I started in about 2008 part-time at yeah. Dort College in northwest Iowa. And so I've been teaching kind of on and off since then, but for the last few years full-time as a as a kind of a regular faculty member yeah and what what is the attraction to psychology did you want to try to figure out your own life or no actually unlike a lot of people who do go into psychology for that reason um i was just fascinated by the study of the mind and behavior and human emotions and i really when once i really got rolling into psychology i wanted to become a mental health therapist which i did do for a couple of years Mm -hmm. after grad school and that was an incredibly informative time, and it really has shaped how I go about teaching psychology now to college students. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, why do we always want to be right? What is, about, what is it about 
who we are that we just want to be right. Because it feels good to be right. It does, doesn't it? And most people, you get a little bit of a pleasure hit when you're right about something. <laughs> you do. It's yeah. like winning a medal or it is, isn't it? being recognized for being, like having people laugh at your joke, yeah. right? I mean, there's a reason comedians, you're a comedian. Yes, right? I am. Yeah, so you know how this yeah. goes, right? You say something funny, people laugh, and you're like, I should do that again. It felt pretty good. <laughs> it's the same thing with being right. Uh-huh. There's, And you also get a little bit of moral superiority yeah. that comes with it. But at like, what cost? I'm right. At what oh. cost? Oftentimes, when you have to be right, someone needs to not be right, and then all of a sudden you've got a relational issue yeah. that continues to linger, right? Well, it could cost you your marriage Indeed or it can. your job, or uh-huh. it could cost you your friendships. You know, we talk to our kids about that sometimes. Hey, you don't always have to be right. Sometimes you just let things go and move on, or you let people feel like they're right. You don't, you don't have to tell everybody. Yeah. You can kind of just swallow it when it's better for a relationship. That doesn't mean you should always do that. That's not healthy either. You don't want to be trod on by people all the time. Um, but yeah, being right, it definitely has its costs. Yeah, sometimes. it does. And, but as a Christian, you start to feel like you've got this uh, superiority because we know truth and we're always right. going to stand up for truth. And that is, in fact, a good thing. Mm-hmm. But you have to be gentle and winsome and um, you want to draw people to God, not act self-righteous and push them away. That's probably one of the greatest challenges of the church today is how do you make people feel accepted for for being themselves without necessarily accepting the things that they do or accepting the ways that they believe? Um, And, you know, one of the biggest, one of the most dangerous words today, right, is tolerance, right? What is tolerance? Oh, yeah. How do you be tolerant of somebody? Well, real tolerance is being able to have a conversation with somebody who you completely disagree with and not treating them poorly and not shoving the truth at them in a rude way, but having having respectful dialogue together. I mean, you see that's missing in our political discourse so often. Everybody complains about politics being rough and unpleasant. Well, it partly goes back to your point about being right. Mm-hmm. You have to be right. And so that doesn't that doesn't engender good feelings of community and friendship when you're constantly trying to be the right person. Mm-hmm. Or, look, I have the truth. You have to follow this. Well, a lot of other people don't agree with that, and that's not always the best way to to develop that feeling of how do I share my truth with you in a way that you're going to want to join me rather than you're going to want to fight me on it. Mm-hmm. Seems to me that ever since the Internet came out, and I think it's still around, isn't it, the Internet? I don't know. I don't mostly know on computers? Yeah. Yeah. But there's this <laughs> now this position you can take where you can sit in your bunker behind your keyboard and you can... You can view, you can give your opinion out, which you would probably never say to someone face to face. So right. we've developed this ability to just be kind of mean spirited and yeah. kind of unfiltered and raw. And it seems that it just creates uh, more ugliness than it does unity. It does, and there's something to be said for anonymity and kind of dissociating yourself from your opinions, your thoughts, and your yeah. ideals. When you're able to do that from kind of these hidden caves or or a, actually a coffee shop in the middle of a city. Right? right. I mean, you don't have to be in your basement to be sending out mean tweets and and uh, and ridiculous things on Instagram or whatever people use. Um, but yeah, it's it's very easy to be cavalier about anything you say when no one can attach it to who you are. One of the worst things ever is when people were allowed to create Twitter handles or you know these kind of alter identities that mm-hmm. no one really gets to see who they are at all. Right. 
you know, you could be playing a game online or be chatting with somebody online, and they might portray themselves as a 45-year-old college professor. Right. In reality, they're a 16-year-old kid. Right. Who might be a woman or a young woman. Right. Who's saying, I'm a 45-year-old man, right? Yeah. You, I mean, it's, you could be anybody online, yeah. anybody you want. I'm not sure that's a really healthy way to express no, yourself. It's not at all. And it seems that we have lost a fair amount of civility because of the way in which we've gotten used to expressing our opinions in that in that safety bunker coffee shop zone where people aren't going to know who we are and we get to act all tough. Yeah. And then we're always going to be right and everyone else is going to be an idiot. Yeah. And you see that in the words that people use. I mean, people are... They, they just roast each other or flame each other or whatever the cool word is now. I think it's roasting. Roasting? That's what the kids say today. Okay. See, I wouldn't know that. That's what my kids say. Well, yeah, this what is like say? roasted or, you got or roasted? get wrecked or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Neither of which are particularly my favorite things to hear from my kids, but I don't think they're listening right now. They should be in school. <laughs> so I'm interested about um, the black and white behavior that a lot of people have. They, they, I, I've always said if you want to be a, a person of influence, you have to be willing to be influenced. If somebody said, yeah. I'd really love for you to try this, um, it's okay for me to go, yeah, I'll give that a shot. I'm, I'm okay with being influenced in some areas. Sure. You know, it's like, if you want to talk to me about faith, how about we take a, a walk up the mountain? And yeah. I go, well, I don't, I've never walked up a mountain before. Right. But I'm willing to be influenced to do that. Yeah. Right. And But I grew up sort of in a black and white world. Right. And that's the hardest thing to, to get over is that black and white position. I think many Christians probably grow up like that. I think they do. Black and white, Mm -hmm. very, um, maybe not very legalistic, but we tend to be kind of legalistic in our faith circles. Do this, don't do that. This is bad. This is good. Um, And there's a missing kind of nuance to things where not not all things are bad and that we consider bad. Not all things are good that we consider good. Um, And you have to kind of find that middle ground. But you're right, having that adventuresome spirit, being willing, having openness. You know, that's one of the, you know, the big five personality test or exam- or um, inventory. One of the things is openness. That's one of the measures of a personality. How open are you to new experiences? Mm-hmm. And it would be, I don't, I don't know any studies about this necessarily, but it would be interesting to find out how people of a faith background compare on openness levels to those who are from a non-faith background. Are people not of a faith, are they more open to different experiences and different levels of of trying new things than people who come from more tightly knit, more conservative type of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. My guest is Dr. Hmm. Andy. Maybe S- Dr. Andy Scuttinga is my guest in studio. He is a uh, psychology professor at North Central University. We're going to take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Welcome back to the show. I have in studio Dr. Andy Scuttinga. He is a professor at North Central University, a psychologist, and I always love talking to psychologists, and I like Andy a lot. So uh, I want to ask uh, about so many issues. When, when I think about today's 2019, the most searched word in for scripture, the most searched verse was don't worry about anything, Philippians 4, 6, and 7, because people have anxiety off the charts. Oh, yeah. Where does that come from? 
That's a great question. Well, it comes it. from <laughs> comes it comes from a lot of different things. Sometimes, sometimes honestly, it's it's just chemistry, like it's it's brain chemistry, biomedical biochemistry. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's exactly. just your brain. Sometimes people have the wrong. Uh, I'm not going to go into the great depths of biochemistry, but. Yeah, sometimes people's brain chemicals are off balance. They have too much serotonin or not enough. They have mm-hmm. too much dopamine or not enough. Right. And when your levels aren't right, you feel things that you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily able to control with traditional means of just don't worry. Right. Mm-hmm. It's easy to say just don't don't worry, and that's probably one of the least effective things to say to somebody with serious anxiety issues. Hey, just don't worry. Well. Actually, I am worried, and it never quits. Mm-hmm. That's usually the response. I can't, I can't stop worrying, and I'm trying. Um, <clears throat> anxiety is a tough one because we want to, as Christians, we just want to say, hey, just trust in the Lord, and all your anxieties will cast your cares upon the Lord, and all right. your anxieties will go away. Right. Well, that's, that's good advice, but it's not that easy. And I often believe that in many cases, people's anxiety is, you know, it's multi-pronged. It comes from their past history. It comes from their current situation. It comes from some brain chemistry issues. It might come from trauma that's been unresolved, or it might just simply be they choose to worry too much about too many things. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of what we do really comes down to choices that we have. And anxiety is part of that. I I do believe that. I do believe that many of us choose to worry about things. We don't, we don't need to, we don't, we don't have to worry about them. Mm -hmm. And so then the, the question always is, well, then what do I do about it? And some of it is casting your cares upon the Lord and being genuine with that. Because you can cast your cares upon God, but if you don't trust that he will help you, it's not going to be as effective, right? And so the best the best treatments for anxiety sometimes have three pieces. Number one, it's prayer, right? And number two, it's choosing or working maybe with a therapist to choose different pathways for handling the fear that you have in your life or the worries that you have. And then the third thing, Really, it might be a little bit of anxiety medication. Yeah. It's kind of like pain. Same thing with depression, too. Sometimes, if you've ever had a serious injury or if you've been in severe pain, you have to get ahead of the pain. Um, A family member was recently dealing with a very painful issue, and the doctor basically said, look, we have to get ahead of the pain. We have to completely block it, and then you start over. And sometimes it's a little bit like that with mental health issues. Not, Not all of them, but... You know, depression and anxiety, the things that are two most common. You kind of have to get ahead of it and stop it to a degree. And then you begin to work on the healing process when the pain or the anxiety or the fear or the sadness isn't so great that it's debilitating. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in our church circles, we have a tendency to look at people with mental health issues and decide without their input that it's a spiritual issue and that they're not close enough to God or they're not relying on God enough, or they're not walking with the Lord, or they're not close enough to Jesus. There's a lot of ways we can say this, Mm -hmm. but basically we're telling them, look, if you just improved your faith life, all these things would go away. And I just don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really unfair to do to people who are suffering. It's not just, you can't just pray away things like this. It kind of reminds me of that story of the guy whose town is flooding. He's up at the front door, and somebody comes by with a big truck and says, hey, Get in the truck. We'll drive you to safety. And he said, no, I've asked the Lord for help. He'll deliver, right? And then he's up on the porch, 
the the waters are above his head now or above his waist. He's got to get up on the porch, and a boat comes by. Come on, get in the boat. We've got a rowboat. We can help you. No, I'm waiting on the Lord. <laughs> you know, and then he's on the roof. You know the story. I, know, I love the right? story. The helicopter comes by with a ladder and say, get on the helicopter. This is your last chance. And the guy says, no, I'm waiting for the Lord to rescue me. And then they find his body floating in the water a couple days later because God sent that deliverance mm-hmm. three or four <laughs> times already. And it's that way for me. In my experience, it's that way with mental health issues. Christians say, just wait on the Lord. The Lord will meet you there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the Lord wants you to meet you in a therapy center or with a therapist or in a clinic to get some meds from your doctor, from a psychiatrist or, or somebody who's able to give medications. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating for me to see that, especially when Christians just fail to understand there's multiple ways to go about bringing healing to people. And... Just because a psychologist came up with a theory that wasn't from the Bible doesn't mean it's not useful and valid and can help people. It's a very interesting subject, and I want to stay on this for a while. I'm also thinking of a verse out of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3, which basically says, I'll paraphrase it, uh, a man will blow up his own life and then be angry at God. Right. So when a person will make bad decisions, that creates a lot of chaos in their lives and undesirable circumstances— and they remain mad at God. What is the best way to help a person like that? Honestly, I think it's just to help them see where their choices have led them to this point and realize that God God doesn't give us bad things. I don't think God can, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it, God's not nature is purely good. Yes. It's not in his character to, to hand us something bad and say, well, here, deal with this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how you do. So sometimes, yeah, God allows for those things to happen. And people ask every day, millions of times around the world, God, why is this happening to me, right? And many times it's it's simply holding up the mirror and saying, okay, look at yourself. What did you do? You know, how did you ruin this part of your relationship? <laughs> how did you, mm-hmm. how did, who put you in this place where you keep doing the same wrong thing over and over again? Whether, you know, whatever it, yeah. whatever it is, it could be a lot of different things. And so, uh, you know, from a psychological perspective, it's really helpful. There's a lot of therapy models that are set up to get clients to take responsibility for their own actions and say, yep, I actually did this. I am the one who caused the friction in my marriage. I Mm -hmm. am the one who frequently yells at my children instead of explaining things to them. I am the one who chose to break the law in, in this regard. And I can't be shouting and shaking my fist at God for doing that to me because I did it myself and I had the choice to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Andy, after you learn something or something gets into your brain, how hard is it to overwrite that thought or that tradition that you're holding on to? It's pretty hard. That's what I thought. Actually, for most people, it is far harder to, how do I phrase this? It's harder to change someone's mind once they've made their mind up than it is to teach them something brand new. It's much easier to learn something new than it is to have your mind changed mm-hmm. because we hold on really tightly to the things, again, goes back to your original point, your original question, we hold on tightly to the things that we feel right about. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to be proven wrong unless they're very curious. You know, some people have very curious minds where they're like, hey, show me show me something new, right? And right. They're, they're always happy to have that kind of information. They have very flexible minds. They have a flexible mindset, and that's honestly probably a permanent part of their personality. Mm-hmm. Many of us, I would throw myself into this boat. I don't particularly enjoy being proven wrong. I don't really like having arguments that I lose um, because I enjoy, I like being right. 
<laughs> most yeah. of the time. And I feel like most of the time I am, even though I'm probably probably not. And I think that's just kind of a natural part of who we are. Mm-hmm. Isn't it kind of liberating, though, when new information comes in that shines a new light or a new truth on something? Oh, yeah. And you go, wait a minute, I have to, I have to change my thinking now. One of my favorite things about being a college professor is working with 18, 19, you know, 23, 24-year-olds who have pretty, pretty strong opinions about things. And they come and they take a psychology class and they leave and they say, wow, I had no idea. That totally changes my mind about these things, <laughs> yeah. right? I had no idea the mind could do that. I didn't know that we could, you know, people were capable of this. Or, wow, I didn't know how dumb people are <laughs> or how much we are like sheep, yeah. right? You talk yeah. about social psychology and everything is about how easily influenced we are as people. And so I love it when students have that kind of aha moment of, I, I was wrong this whole time. That's so interesting. I feel like the older we get, though, the, the less excited we are about learning new things. Maybe it's just me, but I still try to be curious. But, yeah, yeah being proven wrong, is it's never a, an easy swallow yeah, for criticism is, anybody. Criticism is really a hard thing to, re- to mm-hmm. receive, whether it's feedback or criticism or right. can I give you a couple of observations? Right. You know, I don't know how you phrase it. If you want to try to make a headway with somebody, what's the best way of getting that conversation started? That's a super question. It, it depends on the person, right? I mean, yeah. if, you, if you're dealing with a combative person, maybe the best way is to be combative with him. Interesting. Because sometimes people prefer that, it's right? what their language is. Right. Yeah. You know, I've met people who they will only respect you if you're aggressive back to them. You know, <laughs> there may be very pushy, aggressive personalities. Yeah. And if you try to be nice, you know, nice in the traditional sense, if you're too nice with people like that, they'll walk all over you and they won't respect you. Whereas you might have another coworker or another, you know, somebody you supervise who you're giving feedback to. And nobody likes that word anymore either, mm-hmm. feedback. Anytime I hear the word feedback, I think, oh, brother. <laughs> what are you going to tell me now? Yeah. Yeah, do I really pretty. want your feedback, right? <laughs> so, but but sometimes people who who might be very fragile in their own self-concept, you can't just storm it and be like, this is what you need to do, right? Then that doesn't work either. So you really have to play it by the person that you're dealing with rather than having a one-size-fits-all. That's probably true for just about every interaction with a human, period. Yeah. yeah, but you always hear that. Make sure you, you know, say three nice things and then bring up your criticism. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Does that still hold true? Yeah, uh, it, it depends on the person. Yeah. I don't like that. Yeah, Look, if you, if you want to criticize me, get to the point. I don't need to hear three nice things first because then I know what's coming. <laughs> the hammer. It's like, oh, here's a couple pieces of candy. Now yeah. I have some broccoli. Yeah, right, right. right which right. I don't ever want, by the way. Yeah. Dr. Andy Scudiga is my guest. He is a professor of psychology at North Central University. And we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with lots more.
Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to be having Dr. Andy Scudinga in the studio today. He's a uh, professor of psychology at North Central University here in Minneapolis. And uh, I always find it fascinating, Andy, when people raised, they're raised in the family they're raised in. Maybe they heard something in sixth grade that has stuck with them and it's now become part of their psyche. And hmm. because somebody told them in sixth grade or in eighth grade that um, they they did something or acted a certain way and it's now become part of how they have formed their identity. Absolutely. And it, it most 99.9% of the time, it's a lie. It has nothing to do. It, it should have never right. been embraced the way it was. Right. And yet they somehow still let that live on. And I, I'm always fascinated when, when you have a lie that you stick to and you can't seem to let it go. It's, Again, because you, when something is so ingrained into who you are, it's very, it's very difficult to chip it away. It's almost like you have to have an entire dissertation written against that point <laughs> that you have in your uh-huh. mind, right? You, you need evidence. You need, um, you need multiple people to tell you that's not true. You're not whatever it is that the, the lie has been for years. And sometimes I think people hang on to that because it, it is their identity, and maybe they're afraid of walking away from the identity they've had for years. You know, you're that guy or you're that woman who you've always been this way. Well, you've been shaped that way because you've believed this thing about yourself this whole time, which yeah. isn't necessarily true. And so, I mean, how many times do are people held back by the fear of what they could become? You know, I think people who are thinking, should I follow Jesus? It's, it's a scary decision for them because they're afraid of how it's going to change their life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes believers are afraid of doing, trying, thinking new ways because they're afraid it might shatter their faith or it might challenge it in ways that are uncomfortable or it might change who they are. And so probably a big piece of why people hang on to lies about themselves like that is fear of what, what the truth might be. And they're also, I'm wondering if they live in this little self-imposed prison where they would like to live a different life, but the risk of either failing or having something reinforced uh, is just too intense or too dramatic, and I can't risk it happening again. Oh, yeah. That's a significant piece for many people, especially going to therapy, is fear. What's on the other side of this? Mm -hmm. If I I change my life, what's going to happen? If I change the way that I react to my kids or interact with my kids, will they still love me the same? Will they respect me? If I change this dramatically, will my wife want to stay married to me or my husband? I mean, I'm speaking from my perspective, right. obviously. Um, will I be able to keep my job? What's what's going to happen? Will people like me as much? You know, I'm a really fun, happy-go-lucky type of guy. Everybody likes that about me. But yeah. if I get serious about my faith or I get serious about my work, will people like me less, less mm-hmm. because – I'm less fun and less exciting than I used to be. Well, you're healthier and you're in a better place. Yeah, but I'm afraid that if I go to that healthier, better place, I'll lose all my friends. Right. So people, you know, I, I have plenty of examples in my own life of this, right, where fear of change or fear of doing something new can get in the way of doing what God's calling you to do in maybe a different area, sure. a different realm of life. So when you understand that Satan pretty much takes the opposite to everything God says, right? Because that's his MO. It's all he can do. He can't create anything new. All he can do is counterfeit. Right. But the truth is, and when Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, it seems that Satan's MO would be 
to say you're going to end up lonely and old and no one's going to love you. Absolutely. That's that's the way he operates, isn't it? That's right. And yeah. it's terrifying for a lot of people to think of it that right. way, to think of their life ending up like that. Yes. Right? Um, yeah, that's a great point. You're so right. when people talk about feeling lonely mm-hmm. and it seems that in the age of the digital media that we're living in, yeah. there are more people sitting alone looking at their phone than they are thinking, I wonder if I might have a conversation with an actual other human being. Oh, yeah. It's, and then they can't figure out why they have these intense feelings of loneliness. The power of social media is in, is incredible, isn't it? And social media is like a lot of things. Too too much of it is probably not healthy for you. In moderation, it could be great. Yeah. Right? I mean, look at Facebook. You can connect with family members and old friends in easy ways. You can share your pictures. You can have chats. You can... Uh, show everyone where you went on vacation. The the dark side of that, though, is you can show everyone where you went on vacation. Right. And that makes other people feel bad. Right. Or you show them the one great picture that you had where everyone was actually smiling. Yeah. You know, where your kid wasn't dangling over the rail at the Grand Canyon. <laughs> right. right. Where you right. weren't yelling at somebody because they wouldn't get in the car because the buffaloes are coming through Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. you know, unsafe to get out of the car. You, you don't, nobody shows people stuff like that. So I'm sure some people do, but... We have these curated lives that we want to show everybody, and it and people allow themselves to feel bad about that. Like, don't feel bad about your friends having a better vacation than you. Be happy for them. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for us to do that because it, you know, it sows the seeds of jealousy mm-hmm. or discord or whatever, any other kind of words you want to use yeah. like that. Our college students, um, we we talk a lot about social media and use of the phones and how you reach a certain point of use where it, it really does become unhealthy and you stop using normal social skills that you have and you rely on short texts and tweets and 140 characters and emojis yeah. to express an opinion about something or your feelings about something that's so badly stunted by these few short words. You really need to have a good conversation with somebody to tell them, hey, I'm kind of upset because you treated me this way. Right. You, doing that with an emoji... <laughs> that's yeah. that's effective in the short term because you you know show an angry face and right. your friend's like oh my friend's angry at me well then what that doesn't accomplish really anything yeah and we see way way too much of that yeah and I mean you just see people driving with their phones right that's a, that's terrifying too but that's probably not the great topic for this show yeah but when you <laughs> I had a friend say to me the other day we were talking about a mutual friend and he said you know you should text him. And I thought that was his response. I should text him. Right. How about call him? Yeah, right. <laughs> How about disturb him and call him, you know? Um, but I also think that we are losing our ability to form friendships mm-hmm. and to be friends and to be intimately involved in each other's lives, which, by the way, is messy. Yeah. And you can't be intimately involved in somebody's life through Facebook or through Twitter I or through anything like that. Yeah. It's, it's not possible and you can have a thousand or two thousand or five thousand followers or friends or whatever, but if you never sit in a room and look them eye to eye and say, "How are you doing?" You're never going to know really how they're doing. Yeah. I mean, how body language is so incredibly important in communication. There's so much nuance in the human face. I mean, you could cut off people's bodies and just put their heads on a table, and I totally realize how creepy that sounds. But if you did, and you could see. You could have an incredible conversation with just someone's face. That's all, that's all you need, because you see their eyebrows yeah. and you know their mouth and how their head droops and you know their their faces like that. <laughs> Sounds like a hilarious episode of Futurama. Yeah, yeah, I'll just yeah, say that now. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for bailing me out on that one. Yeah, I did my best. 
Um, but it is so true. And the nonverbal stuff I'm fascinated with, by the way, I think nonverbal communication is, uh, is what is what we're going to lose altogether if we only connect yeah. digitally. I, I think you're right. There, there's some real, there's some real danger in that. And there's all kinds of studies that are demonstrating that people are much lonelier the more they spend on their phones. Mm-hmm. The more time you spend on the phone, the more lonely you, yeah. you tend to feel and the more disengaged to other humans you, you tend to feel. Yeah. Yet on the other hand, we have, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. People are always on their phones because they're afraid of missing something, right? Oh. You're still missing something. Because if you're, you know, if you're looking at a picture of somebody's salad on their Instagram feed, you're still missing the salad. You right. know, you're not, you're not, you're, you're not there already. So why worry about it being on your phone and getting upset because someone had a great salad at, mm-hmm. you know, the salad shop or whatever. You know, it's just when you think, when you say those things out loud, it seems kind of silly. Like, why are we looking at other people's food I agree. to feel connected to them? No, I, I really don't understand that phenomenon. I don't get that either. I don't want to see your pizza. I'm not even on Facebook, so. Yeah, I, I'm not either. Okay. My mom still thinks I am, but I'm, but I'm not. <laughs> mom, I'm sure you're going to listen to this at some point. I'm sorry. I'm just not, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, it's not, you're not returning your, your Facebook uh, posts, no. which is fine. Yeah, I stay with you. Know, but if you were going to teach a class on Friendship 101, uh, because here's what I hear more than anything is, how disconnected people feel and how mm-hmm. lonely they feel. Yeah. And maybe we've lost the art of friendship. And from a, a psychologist standpoint, I want to be cared for. I want people to like me and I want to have friendships. Yeah. How would I go about that? Well, God made us to have connection with other people. And I would say to any lonely person out there, what what are you doing to bridge that gap? Um, if you're a really introverted person, which... Many people are, actually. There's probably more introverts in the world than extroverts. Mm-hmm. It just seems like there's more extroverts because we're louder and we talk a lot more. And we're what more are likely... I'm an extrovert. Okay. Very strongly, actually. My okay. wife is an introvert, um, which is unusual. Is Most people married are the same thing. Okay. That's a great match. Okay. But it's, it's interesting. Whenever you take personality inventories, the longer you're married, the closer you become to the middle of anything that you're far apart on. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's just naturally what happens to everybody. You become mm-hmm. more mellow your extremes become less extreme the older you get because you become either savvier or you become you just kind of relax some of those things about yourself. But um, now I got off, I got off topic here. That's what okay. Was, We're back on the friendship uh, right. class. And, you yeah. know, I've always thought if you want to uh, have a good friend, you got to be a good friend. Absolutely. And I think there is a, a lot of work um, involved, but it's, it's what life is. Life is yeah. great relationships, right? Absolutely. It is. And in a lot of ways, you are who your friends are. Mm-hmm. It's far easier to be influenced by a group of people than for one person to influence a group of people. Yeah, you know, if you have four friends who are doing dumb things or things you don't appreciate, or they're acting ways that you don't want to, that you don't want to do, or you don't want to be that way, chances are much higher that you're going to eventually end up doing those same things that they are, rather than you influencing them over time. So yeah, friendship is a two way street. But if you're going against a group. Everyone should realize that the group is going to influence you almost every time in the end. So mm-hmm. you have to choose your friends wisely. And sometimes it means changing your friend group. You know, if you have friends and you're lonely, you need to find some different friends. And you have to be the one to work at finding those friends. They're not going to just appear and invite you to things. You have to create some space for people to walk into. And that sometimes means inviting others to something. Um, if you're If you're a lonely person... You need to go to a church and not just wait for somebody to find you. Mm-hmm. 
you should go introduce yourself to people. Yeah, Find somebody helpful. that might look like they're interesting to talk to and just go introduce yourself. Mm-hmm. And I know there's people who would listen to this and say, yeah, but that's not me. I'm not outgoing. Well, if you're lonely and you're not outgoing, you're going to have to do something about it. And sometimes change means being uncomfortable for a while and doing something that's new to you and unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. Maybe find somebody who you are friends with and ask them to help you. Yeah. Let's go meet people together so that I can create some new relationships in my life. Most Andy, friends are going to be happy to do yeah. that. Andy, what if someone plays the shy card, but you don't understand I'm really shy? I say, okay, you're shy. You still have to go out and meet people. Right. And if it's, if it's so hard for you to do and it's so, if it's painful – then I would recommend going to see somebody to talk about that Mm -hmm. and develop some new strategies. And it's not just reading a book, a self-help book, and saying, now I'm good. You might have to enlist somebody to practice with who you trust. And if you don't have anybody like that, then maybe it's time to go see a therapist and say, look, I'm so shy and I'm lonely. I don't know how I'm going to go about making new friends. Help me. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, if I was, I'm an extrovert, I have no problem meeting people. But if I also realize I talk way too much and I dominate conversations and I'm turning people away from my friendships because I'm so overpowering as a personality, Mm -hmm. it's the same thing if I go to a therapist and say, hey, I need to figure out some new strategies and I can't do it myself. Mm -hmm. How do you help me do that? Yeah. It's a two-way street. Because we all have four or five blind spots in life, don't we? Oh, yeah. Some of us have eight or ten. Eight or ten, yeah. Uh, Dr. Andy uh, Scottiga is my guest. He's a psychology professor here in the Twin Cities. And uh, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm in the studio with Dr. Andy Scudiga, and we're talking about friendship, among other things. And when we think of the ways in which people can become isolated and feeling a little bit left out at times, and in this world where Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, we have that confidence. But we also want to live in fellowship and in community because living in community is so important. And uh, Andy, when, when you think about going to a church and maybe trying to find an activity that you can be involved with at a church where you can sort of be shoulder to shoulder to somebody, that way you're not sitting across from people saying, well, do you like me? I like you. Right. <laughs> you know, because you can develop friendships pretty organically when you're side by side, right? Absolutely. Volunteering at a church is a great way to meet new people. Mm-hmm. Um, the easy one is always, hey, join a small group. Well, that's that's a pretty hefty step for a lot of people. It is. Especially if you're, like we talked about, if you're a particularly shy person or you're you're very introverted. And let me make it clear. Introverts are not people who are unable to or afraid of making relationships by, by any means. Introverts are just people who don't, they don't get, they don't gain lots of energy from meeting with people. It tends to make them more tired. Extroverts are people who gain energy from meeting with people. Like being in a crowded room for a couple of hours, you leave. Extroverts leave that feeling energized and excited. Introverts leave that feeling like, okay, I've used up a lot of energy for that. I need to recharge my batteries. So I, I that, sometimes that's a misnomer about introverts. Like they're they're all shy and they're all none of them are outgoing, which mm-hmm. isn't isn't totally true. But the the people that we're talking about who are particularly feeling lonely and shy and kind of disenfranchised. I would, I would highly recommend that they step outside their comfort zone a little bit and 
yeah, sign up to be volunteer at nursery where there's little kids. You might, if you like little kids, mm-hmm. you might meet other like-minded people who share some similar characteristics, who might share some similar interests, and you can start off talking like that. Maybe you teach Sunday school and you get to know some of the parents of kids that you're teaching. Um, maybe it's just being a greeter at a church where you don't have to know everybody's name. You just say, welcome. Thanks for coming. Come on in. That's not that hard, really. And you might run into all kinds of interesting people who want to know who you are, too. You know, being you have to be approachable, but you have to be willing to approach others and just simply say, here I am. Here's mm-hmm. my name. Nice to meet you. What, yeah. do you. what do you do? And you do all the the standard, how do you define yourself type of questions. Another thing people can do is start looking for people and identifying them ahead of time. What are the types of people that I want to hang around with? You know, I want to find adventurous people. I want to find quiet people. I want to find people who like books like I do or like films like I do or music like mm-hmm. I do. Well, how do you find that out? You start asking questions of other people. Or you identify people that you would like to be friends with, and then you figure out if you want to approach them or not, and maybe you invite them to lunch or you invite them for coffee. And there's so many people who say, I can't do that. And my answer would always be, well, why not? What are you afraid of? What do you have to lose? If you're already lonely and they say, no, I don't want to hang out with you, you're you're not out anything. right? Yes, you've been rejected, and that sometimes is painful. Like literally – there's a piece of your brain that recognizes pain mm-hmm. that does it lights up the same for rejection as it does if I slapped you in the face. Wow. I, I, I'm not going to slap you in the face. Thank you. Well, we don't have an fMRI to look at your brain. If we did, I would probably oh, slap cool. you and then That'd reject be worth you. It. Yeah, and then yeah. we'd be able to see how it's exactly the same in your brain. <laughs> right. right? So these pain sensors light up for rejection, but that pain goes away. Mm-hmm. Just like if you stub your toe or slam your finger in a car door. It hurts for a while, mm-hmm. but that goes away. And so if you're willing to swallow that pain and say, okay, I got rejected, I'm going to try again because I've got a list of five people that I would like to get to know and I'm going to pursue them in a friendship and see what happens. That That's just what people need to start trying to do if they're not finding connection in any other way. Mm-hmm. Another question that comes up from listeners often, Andy, is they're dealing with a particular heartbreak yeah. and, you, and it's clear to me from their messages that indeed their heart has been broken. Yeah. And I, I, I feel the pain that they're feeling on some level, because um, I don't haven't walked through their, their experience, but you want to, you know, hurry them through the discomfort because that's what I want to do. Right. Like, hey, I hope you feel better soon, you know, kind of thing. Right, of course. Um, but processing the, the heartbreak that might come from uh, a child that keeps you from access to the, the grandkids or yeah. a relationship that ends that you had a lot of hope for. Um, and I'm not even entirely sure what question I'm asking, but um, just the, the way of mourning that so you can move on with your life. Well, it's a lot like the processing the stages of grief when somebody dies. Sure. You know, you go through anger and, and disbelief and all the stages, and I, I never remember all five of them, but eventually you have to get to the point where you accept it. And once you accept it, it's usually pretty it's, – it's a lot easier to move on. But it's hard for us to let those things go because they are painful. Oh, they're so painful. Right? And, oh, yeah. you know, if you, have, uh, if you have a relationship that's been what you think is irre- irreparably harmed, there's, there's always a shot for redemption. Always. 
And until the person is until the person dies, or you literally cannot contact them any anymore for for whatever reason, maybe they left the country or whatnot. But there's there's always opportunity for redemption in relationships, and it takes one of the two parties to reach out their hand and say, "I'm sorry" or "I forgive you." And those are really powerful words that a lot of people just aren't able or aren't willing to share. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to that whole idea of choices. How long are you going to hang on to that grief and that loss and that pain? How long are you going to allow that to dictate what you do with your life? And when will you decide, I'm going to move past that? And I, and I know many people say, well, I, I don't have that choice. And I would say every time, yes, actually you do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you need help. You, need, you certainly need God's help. Yeah. Um, and forgiveness is a, it, yeah, it's an incredibly powerful thing. But when you have a broken relationship that you haven't recovered from, you have to ask yourself, what what can I do to make that right? And maybe it's just simply swallowing your personal pride and saying, I I wasn't right. Or I or maybe it's maybe it's saying I was right, but I'm still going to go and apologize and, and take responsibility for my piece of that problem that's still festering and, mm-hmm. and work to heal it. And Maybe the other party never wants to get to that point, and you just have to then say, okay, I've done everything I can. They still don't want to reconcile. I'm just going to hold out hope that this relationship will be redeemed at some point, but I also am going to move on to find happier, healthier, and better relationships with mm-hmm. people that I can share happiness with, and I can offer that to them as well. Mm-hmm. Andy, we just have about three minutes left, and I probably should have allowed for more time for this question, but... When people go through phases of sadness um, or anxiety and they start self-medicating, whether it be with drugs or alcohol or shopping or porn or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. um, what is your uh, advice for getting out of that that grip? You need to surrender it to God and give, give that up and... It often is accompanied successfully with going to someone and telling them, I'm struggling with this and I can't do it by myself. And you need to go to God and say the same thing. I can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. I cannot I cannot beat this by myself. And I and I need your help and I need and I'm surrendering it to you. That's that's the beginning of solving almost any problem, right? Is yeah. is first recognizing that you have a problem. Yeah. And then recognizing that it's your problem. And then third, making steps to do something about it. And if that's confessing, if it's just asking for help, that's that's always the best way to begin. And then it's setting yourself to do the work that it's going to take to to beat it, right? Addictions are really, really hard to beat because what a lot of people don't realize is addictions of any kind, whether it's alcohol, drugs, pornography, shopping, lying, you know, whatever your addiction is yeah. – it's almost always tied into how your brain has been shaped over the period of time that you've been dealing with the addiction. Mm-hmm. It's especially powerful for drugs, right? Drugs yeah. literally shape your brain. Right. But so does pornography. You keep hitting those, you get these little hits of pleasure and you need bigger and bigger and bigger ones. Yeah. This is why people eventually drive themselves to overdose because they're still, they need more of the drug. They crave more of the hit, more of the pleasure that they get from it. And it's, literally a process of rewiring your brain back to where it was supposed to be before you got hooked on whatever it is that you got hooked on. 
Sometimes people can do that by just simply stopping, but that takes incredible willpower. And if there's anything listeners should learn from this is you have limited willpower. Yeah. Human beings have limited willpower and it's even related to how much glucose you have in your body. Like your ability to resist a bowl of chocolate chip cookies in front of you, you can only do that for so long and then you're you're going to give in because you're going to run out of willpower to stop Mm -hmm. yourself from doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's just chocolate chip cookies. That's just chocolate chip cookies, right? Yeah. You know, and when it comes to other things that are, that you are hooked on, good luck. It's, it's tough to beat. It Mm -hmm. really is. And that's why families and and friends have to be patient with those who are suffering from addiction because it's not an easy fix. It takes a long time. It takes really hard work. It takes a good support network. Yeah. And it takes, it takes God. Yeah. You know, obviously. God's got to do a work in your life. Yeah. Then your brain's got to settle down. Yeah. um, Because it's, uh, it's wired in a different way. Right. Yeah. And, and rewiring a brain, again, it, it takes time and effort. Yeah. Well, Andy, thanks for coming in. It's been really great to uh, you have you here in the, uh, in the studio and have you on the show. Thank you. Um, I can see my ratings. They're spiking right now. I've, I've got a chart in front of me, and as, as I'm having you on the air, the ratings are really high I right now. I thought that was just the sound levels. Oh, that might be. You're exactly right. That's just yeah. the sound levels. Okay. That had nothing to do with oh, anything. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Well, but uh, thanks for coming in. Dr. Andy uh, Scudigo has been my guest. He's a, a professor of psychology at North Central University. We're going to take a, a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.